Greetings, faithful listeners. This is your co-host, Dave Kale, with a brief announcement. Um, recently, we've received some feedback that the sound quality has been somewhat diminished on the last few episodes. In particular, people have said that they can't hear me quite as well, I'm too quiet, things like that. Um, we apologize for that, and believe it or not, we, we tried to make some adjustments for this episode, which... It's not clear they made things better. It's possible they might have even made them worse. I'm looking at our waveforms and some editing software, and uh, yeah, I do look a lot quieter. And I, I'm going to be honest with you, we're not quite sure why this is. Um, we, Although we are relatively experienced amateur podcasters, we are not professionals or knowledgeable sound engineers, and we don't use a professional setup. We use uh, a pair of USB mics, Skype, and a MacBook Pro laptop, and all the recording and mixing and editing is done in software. We don't have a soundboard or anything like that. So it's actually kind of hard to, to, to tell what our levels are um, while we're recording. So um, this is something we're going to have to keep working on. We promise we will get it worked out because although we're not professionals, we're, if nothing else, we are um, uh, persistent. So we won't give up. Um, but please be patient with us while we figure it out. Thank you and enjoy the show. Good morning, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Riddles in the Dark from the Mythgard Institute. I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, and with me this morning, as always, my ever-faithful companion, the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson. That's good. That makes me sound really charmingly Sam-like. Yes. I, I consider that a great compliment. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's like Very the greatest, good. Good morning. That's the greatest compliment in Middle Earth, right? The fact that's that right. You're a, you're a loyal friend. That's right. Exactly. Loyal, self-effacing. That's right. <laughs> and always Very be dependent cool. upon. That's right. That's right. Well, good morning, and good morning, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Riddles in the Dark, uh, where we decided today that we would actually get around to talking about, you know, The Hobbit. Uh, we, haven't, we haven't really talked – we've talked, of course, uh, you know, off and on about Bilbo. A little hard to, to, uh, uh, to uh, you know, ignore the topic. Um, but we haven't really actually sat down and treated Bilbo uh, with any, you know, with any sort of consistency. So today we're going to start a series where we're going to be going through sort of the major arc of Bilbo's character and thinking about the kinds of challenges that that's going to present uh, to Peter Jackson and the filmmakers and to be thinking about how they might handle some of those things. So today's show is going to be specifically on Bilbo at the beginning, you know, the the basically the kind of chapter one Bilbo uh, that we get that is, of course, plays such an important role in setting up the story and in setting up the progress of Bilbo's character through the book and uh, how they're going to be handling that in the context of all the other stuff that's going on and from the, you know, with all of the later perspectives worked in and everything. So, And, uh, and we should add that um, where we're heading with this, I mean, obviously this is going to be a recurring topic over the next two years because the the whole story of the Hobbit naturally is about the Hobbit and his and his arc, but um, in the next month where we're heading with this is uh, culminating at um, um, kind of that that sort of pivotal moment in his character in his story 
the showdown with Gollum in the um, um, uh, very aptly named Riddles in the Dark chapter. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So we're going to be looking at uh, the, the sort of the, the setup of Bilbo's character, the, the sort of the starting point of Bilbo's character arc today. And then next week, we're going to be looking at, we're going to sort of, uh, kind of, well, interrupt or supplement or something our discussion of Bilbo to, we're going to stop and talk about Gollum, uh, next week, looking at the depiction of Gollum's character and the, and sort of the Gollum storylines and backstory in order to set up a discussion specifically of the, uh, the sort of the turning point of Bilbo's character. Uh, of course, the Riddles in the Dark chapter is, is, is a, you know a crucial one, obviously, in the story and a really important moment for Bilbo's character. Um, so we're going to be talking specifically about how uh, how the the film is going to be treating not only that encounter between the two of them, but really uh, sort, of, sort of Bilbo's Bilbo's character. So we're going to basically be going back to looking at the role that that's going to play in Bilbo's character development, and then we'll go on from there to be looking at Bilbo's later development, uh, such as his rescue of the doors from the spiders and uh, his behavior in the uh, in the elf. Uh, tunnels and everything so so we will uh that's that's where we're that's where we're going to be headed so we're going to do bilbo at the beginning this week Gollum next week and then the riddle game and bilbo's development as an adventurer as we move forward from there so that's the plan you guys can be can be ready for that and can be readying your comments and questions and theories and things as we move forward there Yep, we're really excited Speak. to to finally we're really excited to finally get to the uh, the riddle games. I think. Uh, yes, I'm excited anyway. Definitely, definitely. Um, yes, and anyway, speaking of uh, readers' theories and or listeners' theories and comments, uh, we have some. I think uh, from last time. Yes, we do. Um, we have some good ones. Uh, for one, and I don't, I don't want to get mired in this, but. Um, um, Going down the uh, the comments on the MythCard website uh, from the previous episode, which all of these have been like in the last four days since I only released it earlier this week, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> um, or I guess it was late last week. Um, Candrel Strongbeard uh, says uh, uh, th- they uh, they they disagree emphatically with your your um, uh, pronouncements on pronunciation of dwarven names. Okay. I, you know, actually, I mean, honestly, I think they're mis. I think they misunderstood you. They say, um, um, uh, let's see, it is not. I don't know how they intend this to be pronounced. Dane, but dying. I'm pretty sure that's what we actually said. The emphasis on the first vowel, I'm fairly yes. certain that's what you were saying, right? Yes, yes. The emphasis on the first vowel that that it's the reason that Tolkien puts the accent mark over the first vowel is to indicate that it's not uh, that that you're not supposed. It's not a diphthong. You're not combining the a and the i. A i as a combined vowel sound uh, in Tolkien's names is generally pronounced i, like the Ainur, uh, for instance, in the Silmarillion. Um, but when he puts an accent on the first vowel, on the first vowel, and he puts an accent over the a, uh, that that is generally to indicate. Just as when he puts, you know, as I said last time, the the circumflex, or the, not the circumflex, the 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 umlaut uh, over the terminal e, that means you're supposed to pronounce it. So so yes, yes, the stress is on the first syllable. Yes, so it'd be dayan. Yes. Ah, uh, but it, the other part that he says is he thinks that the um um. 
the the a sound should be not a as in day but ah as in bark or what do you think uh I don't think so. I'm not and sure the there's evidence for that. Well, basically, the primary difference between those is you're talking about the difference between a long vowel and a short vowel, yes. primarily. Uh, and I mean, now that's not necessarily true. You do a long ah, uh, that is, you know, really the question is, is like a Latinate ah. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't. Um, <laughs> mostly, I think that that's just very hard to say. Dying. Uh, I mean, I just, yeah, I don't really see it. And again, here I would bring the Tolkien family anecdote evidence into play also. Uh, that is that, uh, that speech that I was alluding to last time, um, where they did have, they did use words like stay in, uh, as their like mock dwarf name, uh, dwarf names. Uh, which leads me to believe that they were pronounced things like dayin and and thrayin rather than dyin and thryin. And as I said, like I don't even know what to do with dyin. Um, I mean, I feel like dyin in 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 sort of normal usage, except when you're conscientiously trying to really differentiate the um um those those syllables that dying inevitably ends up saying sounding a lot like dying right exactly i mean that's basically where that sound comes from is you combine those two vowel sounds and you get that's why that's why it makes sense you know sometimes i know that sometimes uh especially american speakers look at the ai sound like an einor and think that it's really counterintuitive that you should say i uh, it, when you see that, but but exactly as you say, it's that's in fact the sound of the Latinate ah, and then the uh, and then the you know that and then the i sound. Right. Um, you can make it, those sounds together, of, and you've got i. It sort of stays back in your throat as opposed exactly. to coming out into the front of your mouth. Exactly, and and I so basically, if 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 they really are, if it really, if they really are designed to be multisyllabic names, then you can't do the diphthong. Uh, that's exa- because if you do the if you do the the ah vowel, it does inescapably become a diphthong. You can't you can't really do it. Um, yes. So so yeah, so that would be my, that would be my my counter argument there. But I I mean I I do have to say I I don't think that that's. Uh, I, I I don't think it's that big a deal, you know. Like if you want to say dying, that's at least it's at least consistent with the other vowel usage. Um, you know, it's better than just Dane, basically, is what I'm saying. Uh, yep. Dane, I think, is kind of legitimately wrong. Um, dying is okay. Uh, Dane, I think, is probably closer, but you know, I'm not going to get up in arms about it. Yep, and there'll probably never be a definitive answer about this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that which, in my opinion, is uh, one of my favorite parts about uh, this world. <laughs> yes, I understand. Um, so we there were a ton, ton of comments. I mentioned this to you earlier this week. There are a ton of comments and interest about what Sauron's going to look like on screen. What yes. form's going to be? I think we're going to leave those because. We've 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 committed ourselves to we will eventually when we get around to it do an episode on 
what on Sauron in the Necromancer, and so we want to stop anticipating ourselves on that. Yeah, we we definitely we thought about doing that this week, of course, but uh, basically, I I, I I've been feeling like it's just it's yes, it's it's we've put off talking about Bilbo and Gollum long enough. It it is time now, and we can come back and talk about the Necromancer more. And we have been discussing it some, yes. uh, so I don't feel like we've been totally neglecting it. I agree that there's more that we can say, and we will come back and say some more later on but uh but for now by golly let's get on to talking about bilbo yes i agree um so on the one one thing that i think would be good to, to discuss is um uh the uh which is a comment from adam he points out bilbo's the whole story thing uh from the trailer where bilbo says you know i told did, i told you that everything i told you was true but i didn't tell you the whole story Mm-hmm. He was wondering if this is a mere reference to um, to uh, Bilbo's white lie, i.e., he's referring directly to the the um, encounter with Gollum in the story for how he acquired the ring, similar to um, the Council of Elrond and his his the way he sort of teed things up right. for his his story there, or whether maybe this that isn't. Uh, couldn't be taken as a reference to the larger story, to all the sort of basically apocryphal material. Um, right. So when he says, I didn't tell you the whole story, he's saying, oh, I didn't tell you about the necromancer, and I didn't tell you about the White Council, and all the stuff that Gandalf was up to, um, which I think is a very interesting I- notion. Um, and uh, my, my sort of curiosity there is is if it couldn't also, in that sense, be taken as a meta comment from the um, producers uh, mm-hmm. the, you know, it's basically sort of a, a um, uh, kind of a, a, not a warning, but, but a, um, <laughs> they're, they're capturing the attention of, of the, of the viewer of people watching the trailer, anticipating the movie to say, this is not, this is not exactly what you're going to be expecting. If you're expecting a very faithful direct translation of the book onto film. Right. Um, right. Yes, I mean I that's how I take it too. I mean, uh certainly in the context of Bilbo's story from the Lord of the Rings perspective, you know, that, that is like, you know, his ref- the the direct references in the book to Bilbo not having told the whole story. Um those clearly are in uh, as in the Council of Elrond as you mentioned. Those clearly are references to the fact that he that he had lied about the riddle game or rather lied about the the ring, the end of the riddle game. Um, and the giving of the ring as a present and all that stuff. Um, but in the film, it does seem that it's setting us up for the other th- – and, and and I would just say like I, that actually – that seems to me to work really well. Um, that is it actually what – it, what it nods to is something which is really from – from a textual standpoint, that is from from, and and I mean that not just like referring to the book as literature, but like as a text, as a written document, and the way that Tolkien places so much emphasis on the actual textual history of the stories within the framework of Middle Earth. You know how how the story of the Hobbit began as Bilbo's private diary, uh, and then was retold and incorporated into the Red Book of Westmarch, which was then recopied and everything else, um, and with supplemented by the learning of the wise and all this stuff. Um, the the given the textual history of it, it actually is quite. I mean that that actually that that idea really does work, and it has a lot of traction. I think within uh, within Tolkien's. Um, 
works within 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 Tolkien's idea. Um, uh, so, sorry. Hang on. Um, so, um, so yeah. Anyway, so there's there's <laughs> my apologies. Uh, um, you sound as though your your yeah, attention sorry. is being torn away. It, it is. Sorry, I'm broadcasting from home today. Yep, that's a danger. Um, yeah, yeah, it, yes, it is. Uh, okay, sorry, my apologies. <laughs> no worries, no worries, it's all right. <laughs> yes, normally, uh, so I am broadcasting from home instead of from my office at school. Worst case uh, scenario, I, we just edited it out, and it never happened. Exactly, which I can, which I, uh, which, which door I can lock. But anyway, sorry. So, <laughs> as I was saying, um, the, the way that the films seem to be setting that up, the way that they seem to be uh, inviting us to look at that, is I do take it in just the way that you were saying. Now you're going to get the full version of the story. Now you're going to get the full backstory. And it would make sense that Frodo might have heard Bilbo's own private diary version, um, which not only ha- will be much more selective, that is, in the years since he has learned more, presumably from Gandalf, mm-hmm. about not only the stuff that happened that he didn't see uh, and wasn't directly a part of, but also even sort of the greater significance of the story that he was personally involved in. And in addition, the sort of other the other like the stuff that he either didn't understand or didn't see about his own part of the story, like what was really going on with Thor and all the quest for Erebor stuff, you know, about what the dwarves really thought of him and, you know, that basically his own diary, his own little, um, his own little Hobbit story is, uh, is, is essentially a very selective version of what happened um, and that he's going to get that, that he's going to tell the rounded out version which is going which is probably going to depict him and his role rather differently or at least give us insight into what other people thought that was not there uh, in the original diary again all that stuff seems to me very plausible seems to me in fact implicit in the textual situation that that Tolkien describes one could imagine uh, a young Frodo who had grown up with the, um, you know, with the the diary version essentially of the Hobbit story, now being introduced to the full significance of that tale. So uh, you know, so that I think that seems to me a very logical kind of setup, and I would assume that it referred to all of those things. That is, to the events that they that he hadn't seen to the uh to the significance of all of the you know, sort of the larger context of the things that he did take part in mm-hmm. and even to the to, to the sort of the more i guess one might say sort of realistic or accurate depiction of the the of his character and of the uh and of the other uh, and of the interactions which implies i would say one thing, I mean, if if that is in fact the way that we're taking it, one thing that we that 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 this might mean, um, if we're if we're to understand Bilbo's words in that way, it relates then back to the question we talked about last week, which was about the reliability of the narrator question, yes. um, because basically it suggests the narrator of the film is indeed going to be reliable, because this is going to be Bilbo opening up and being honest about everything. Um, and, and therefore, you know, so that, that well, basically setting us up to trust. As honest as he can be. Saying. 
Right, right, exactly. Which I mean, it, so it doesn't it doesn't eliminate completely the point of view question or the scope of knowledge question. Right, but it does at least prompt us anyway to see. Um, it does at least prompt us to see uh, him as being reliable. Anyway, that like now he's telling the real story and he's not um, he's not uh, sort of expanding his own role. He's not flatter. He's not being either. Right. He's not being either clueless or flattering of himself. Yeah, we're we're not going to get the we're not going to get the 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 sort of almost. Um, I can't remember if they did this in Princess Bride, but basically the, the the sort of him recounting a story and Gandalf sitting there saying, "No, no, that's not how it happened at all," and then rewatching right. the scene in the in the <laughs> Gandalf corrected version. Or, right, right. Yeah, I, I I suspect that will be the case. I I, I doubt they would go that route with this. Uh, I I think they might play a little bit with the whole narrative stuff, but I think that I think that's something that for for the the vast majority of people who will be sitting in the theaters for these films this fall that that the um the 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 effect of that would be lost on them. Right. <laughs> I right. think I think the the only people that would be sitting around really excited to see i wonder how they'll play with the with the narrative point of view and the reliability of the narrator the only people who are going to be really excited about that are basically the people listening to this podcast <laughs> right exactly <laughs> exactly yeah yeah no i i, I which we I, hope I, is a, an enormous group of people but it probably <laughs> regardless pales in comparison to the uh the the watching public for the film <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. No, I agree with that. Um, yeah, I agree with that. But, but I mean, it it does it does. It, you know, the one question that I think that that issue raises, but but still doesn't completely answer, is the question of Gandalf's participation or Gandalf's perspective. I mean, at the very least, Bilbo is going to have to be recognizing, or rather, we're going to have to be sort of implicitly made aware that. If if the film is to be a story essentially that Bilbo is telling Frodo, he's got to have gotten most of that information about the other stuff from Gandalf. Um, so is there going to be any kind of – any level of direct contribution of Gandalf? Are we going to get – you know, as we talked about last time, a – you know, like uh, you know, Gandalf and Bilbo and Frodo sitting around as part of the frame? Or is – you know, are we going to – you know, is, is Bilbo just going to be recognizing that this kind of came from Gandalf? Because that does then still potentially limit limit the scope. Or, or again, or you know, it's it's also quite possible. Again, you know, as you say, that they're just going to kind of simplify this a little bit, and they're not going to they're not going to think about it or ask us to think about it quite as much. Right. Well, I I do. I I do think that the the reliability of the narrator thing aside, um, although the the chat room, the pop, popular theory in the chat room is the uh, that the the best opportunity for um, uh, uh, the best opportunity for that is going to be the talking purse. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> you know people people seem very reluctant to let that die. They insist it's going to be in there. But you know, I, uh, let me tell you, I will be so happy if one of the trolls' purses talks. Um, here's my question: How does that happen on screen? I mean, <laughs> like seriously, like how do you like? Does it have a mouth? Does the mouth of the purse talk? Like, the, like the the opening the mouth of the purse? Does it like make lips and talk? Does a voice just emerge out of the purse? Like, how do you do that? I don't even know. Uh, so uh, I'll be kind of surprised. And if and you have to have it on screen because if you don't show, 
that it's the purse talking and there's just a voice, no one's going to even – no one who doesn't know the book very well is going to even – Yeah. So, yeah so I it'll suspect be, that it's the purse talking. Maybe it will be Easter egg like just sort of dropped in there and nobody <laughs> – the again, the only people who will notice it will be people who actually listen to this podcast. Yeah. So here's a theory from <laughs> Facebook uh, uh, posted overnight uh, from Caleb. He says, if they go for a framing device with Frodo and Bilbo, they could play with the idea that Bilbo is an unreliable narrator, yada, yada, yada. So you could have a talking purse cut to Frodo who says, you're kidding, right? <laughs> Bilbo admits, yeah, I made that bit up. Sorry. All right. I stepped on a twig, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, I mean, uh, of course, you know, the thing is, is that the talking purse – which, though, like, there's no getting around the fact that the talking purse is is strange um, and is always something that modern readers find very weird. I don't think that Tolkien would have – I mean, to, to actually make the talking purse an instance of unreliability would be a huge deviation. Um, I mean, like, you know, the fact is, in Tolkien's world, sometimes inanimate stuff talks. You know, Turin's sword talks to him, too. And this is part of the tradition that he was following. I mean, you know, like, stuff talks. You know, like, read the Kalevala. You know, you'll get what you'll find talking gear in the in the Kalevala. It happens. Um, and uh, so it just, it actually, in, in The Hobbit, it doesn't feel very organic because we don't get any because it's so so kind of incidental and unexpected and we don't get that kind of thing anywhere else Mm -hmm. um but uh but basically i i you know i i think that that's it's kind of a it's kind of a nod to this older tradition um just as you know elsewhere in that same passage he sort of throws out like you know for trolls as you probably know uh turn into stone when they're exposed to sunlight which of course was actually not a very dominant idea that everybody was familiar with um but it's a way that the narrator you know that tolkien's narrator has of essentially connecting the story that's happening with old tradition even if that old tradition does not always fully exist and certainly is not in necessarily in the in the you know the primary conscious of the of the readers of the story, and the same thing happens with the purse. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, the line that introduces that is, you know, trolls' purses are the mischief, right? Like everybody knows this. You know, like it's, of course, if you're going to pick the purse of a troll, like most likely, like it's gonna it's gonna cause you trouble, not just because the troll is likely to eat you, but. Um, but apparently there's something magical about trolls' purses and they can talk. <laughs> so, um, so you're so not going to get the, away with it. Yeah. So, I, you know, w- within the story, um, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, not, it's not really as, I think, as, as kind of alien and trippy as it seems like to a lot of modern readers. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, uh, I think – the troll's purse is about as likely to talk in the film as uh, the elves are to swing from the trees and sing tra la 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 but uh, we'll see. <laughs> which, is, which is to say extremely likely. Extremely.
extremely oh yes extremely likely uh, all right all right one one last um uh listener question which because i think this is a really good one to address um uh setting aside the reliability thing and getting into scope of knowledge there's going to be a ton of stuff that is going to be included in this film that we we if we're to presume that this really is Bilbo narrating this and they're not just being sloppy that that apparently Gandalf tells Bilbo and tells him in great detail since he's going to know all these internal details about him entering Dol Guldur entering Nazgul tombs all kinds of yeah. things like that yes. Mike points out this introduces the possible for possibility of potential inconsistencies since Frodo and I haven't verified this I didn't watch it last night but uh, mm-hmm. He points out, I think he's right. Frodo in the film, yep. when when uh, they're discussing, um, or or maybe this is even the book too. I really should go check this. Frodo in the film thinks Sauron was destroyed on the slopes of Mount Doom. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, that's definitely in the film. I mean, I I, I can remember. So I can remember Elijah Wood saying that, you know, but he was destroyed. Sauron was destroyed. Yes, exactly. Yep, yep, you're right. So obviously um, Bilbo sitting and recounting the whole entire story as he knows it about how Sauron was in Mirkwood um, would seem to contradict Frodo's later ignorance about the fact that Sauron was not destroyed at the – or the, that Sauron was not destroyed on the slopes of Mount Doom. Uh, either that or Frodo is a real idiot. That, that is the that was those are the two the, the that was the, the the alternative theory I proposed in my response to the guy's comment. Maybe Frodo's just a complete moron, um, <laughs> which I suppose can't be ruled out. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. He doesn't. He seems even. He seems does seem like he's a bit of a doofus in the films, more so yes. even than in the books. Oh, way more, way more. Yeah, I mean that's the main thing that they play up, and the main consequence, as I as I we talked about a couple months ago, yes. about not introducing the seventeen or rather removing the seventeen year gap between yes. the unexpected party and the but rest he's of not it. this big of an idiot. Yeah, I, that would be a little bit surprising. Uh, no, I agree. I mean that is that it, that does. Uh, create a potential. Um, my my sort of take on it um, is I rather suspect they're not ever going to tell us on screen that he's Sauron. I was going to suggest the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do think that that could be – could very well be downplayed um, in the films. That is, he's going to be the necromancer and uh, th- and that's how he'll be alluded to. I sort of my my sort of theory was um, that they would handle this um, by sort of narrowly walking between not declaring him explicitly as Sauron on screen and or by being sloppy with the frame narrative. So in the sense of showing us events on screen that Bilbo doesn't actually know. Right. So Bilbo says, hey, there was a white council thing about the necromancer guy or whatever. And then we see the whole scene unfold, uh, including details that Bilbo has no way of knowing. Right, right. And really that would be an argument for the frame really receding into the background. That is having having the viewers thinking about the Frodo-Bilbo frame as little and as infrequently as possible. Um, such that, that, for instance, perhaps – you know, perhaps it, it doesn't even return to it at the end. One could imagine it just being used as an introductory gambit, and then we never even go back to it. Yep. Um, they I could mean, leave I it that far possible. behind. 
uh, and then uh, actually, you know, uh, this is an interesting idea. I initially rejected it, but actually, it's an interesting idea. Zach's hammer in the chat room does point out that it's possible, maybe the way they they'll tell the events at Dol Goldor that maybe Frodo will think that he was destroyed in Dol Goldor. Hmm. I mean, I, I don't. I I, I think the film. The, I, I mean, think it'd be impossible for the White Council not to know that yeah. he's still alive and has escaped. Yeah. But maybe they lied to everyone. Yeah, or just, I mean, you know, the fact that, like, the White Council figures it out and nobody else knows. I mean, that, that in fact, is what happens uh, yeah. in, in, in Tolkien's version. I mean, when Gandalf goes to Dol Guldur on the occasion when he meets Thran and gets the map and the key, um, he, he's there in order to confirm that it's Sauron and, you know, Tolkien depicts – in the essay on the Rings of Power in the Third Age at the end of the Silmarillion, depicts Gandalf coming back to Elrond and being like, yep, it's Sauron, all right. Um, so they know. I mean, so they've known. When the Hobbit starts, they've known for a while. And so they've, you know, the White Council knows for decades prior to the War of the Ring that the Necromancer was Sauron. That's why they move against him. But they didn't share um, that knowledge widely. No, they didn't. But though, though, remember that doesn't necessarily mean that they're hiding anything. The thing that people, uh, you know, this is this is actually uh, I'm I'm beginning to think of to like I I want to make this a, a an oft repeated rule. They don't have the internet in Middle Earth. Don't forget that they don't have the internet in Middle Earth. Um, th- <laughs> They they don't seriously. People often seem to forget, like you know, even basic things. Like you know, I've heard people say, like, how could they possibly not figure out that the one that the ring that Bilbo found was the was the one ring? Like, how did what this else not could go viral? Been? Exactly. Well, well, like you know, that like comparing information, not actually that easy. Um, you know, the wise do seem to be able to communicate. I mean, Elrond and Galadriel and Gandalf can can communicate. But most other people don't. And and certainly – so like people in the Shire, have they heard about this? No. Does Gandalf go around telling everybody he meets? No. Well, of course he doesn't. I mean why on earth would he? Uh, that's not really a great idea. I mean what? Is he just going to like – you know, have a few beers at the Prancing Pony and be like, so, do you guys know that the Necromancer is actually Sauron? That's awesome, isn't it? I mean, like, why would he do that? He's not going to do that. He's not just going to go around spreading fear and terror in the population um, for absolutely no purpose. So, um, so no, of course the word hasn't gotten out. And, and even if they were, and, and even, even if they're trying to spread it, like, it's, it's, it's not going to spread fast and it's not going to spread well. So, um, so yeah, no, that, that, that I think is not really an obstacle at all. Um, could Frodo think that it was at Dol Guldur that the necromancer, that Sauron was destroyed? Well, I mean, certainly in the context of, of the you know the film scene that we were describing, that's obviously not how Gandalf takes uh, his words. I mean, it's that's in the in the context of explaining that the ring wasn't destroyed at the time of its taking uh, at Mount Doom. So, so yeah, I mean that that clearly uh, that clearly wouldn't work. Uh, I mean, unless we're going to argue that like, Gandalf was just mistaking what Frodo meant, but it seems pretty clear in the context of the film that that's not what he meant. So. Um, this is going to be so, very interesting to see how they decide to handle this because the temptation will be to hit it to you know the temptation for the I think the the 
past film fans is going to play is going to be to play up the fact that the necromancer is Sauron and, and, right. and very heavily imply it. You know, because because that's the kind of stuff that people who are coming to watch a prequel for the other films are going to want to see. They're going to want to see Sauron. Um, But but, you know, I think we've discussed this before that there's there's two dangers there. One is this this idea that it will introduce inconsistencies with the other film, which I think at the end of the day, that that's not going to be a real barrier to them um, uh, to them doing this. They'll just say, who cares? Um, but the other, the other danger, which we've discussed before is the fact that if they play, if they use him too much, he will overshadow the real villain of the film, which is, um, uh, Smaug and then the, and then the events of the, you know, the goblin armies and stuff. Um, and, and that would be a real shame because that would really alter the story. So, uh, I think this is going to be, it's going to be interesting to see how they handle this, particularly in the context of, this is Bilbo relating a story, and I rather suspect that he doesn't actually know the identity of the necromancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's at least possible. Um, one thing I want to confirm because I, have, I haven't said this explicitly: the the line, you know, the like, but he was destroyed. Sauron was destroyed. That's just a film thing. It's not in the books. Um, Frodo does not think that Sauron was destroyed in the books. In fact, the line that uh Gandalf delivers when they uh, when they start talking about Sauron himself explicitly um is the rumors that you have heard are true he has indeed risen again and left his hold in Mirkwood and returned to his ancient fastness in the dark tower of Mordor that so, name even you hobbits have heard of so i mean yeah there's no so there's no there's just no question briefly a question about that um is um um <laughs> By the way, just an aside in the chat room, somebody pointed out that that while they don't have Twitter or Facebook in Middle Earth, they do have Palantirnet. <laughs> no, 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 no. Look, I, mean, I guess you can call it a network, and maybe back in the day it was a network. But like, what they they've got they've got like a dedicated connection between Orthanc and and uh, and Baradur at this point, and then what? I mean, come on now. That's right. It's like it's like rural. It's 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 the equivalent of living in the rural U.S. where all you can get is uh, satellite internet. <laughs> except except all you can get is like a direct line to hell. Uh, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what Actually, says. I think there's people in rural U.S. who would claim that their satellite internet's quite similar. <laughs> Possible. Possible. But yeah, no. So it's it's very it's very uh, it's it's it's, 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 it's it, theoretically theoretically you know, but. Um, yeah. No. So, no. Um, um, but so here's a, just briefly, and we really should get on to our topic. But um, yes. it, the, so, I guess that that hearing rumors of Sauron uh, doesn't necessarily conflict with sort of wanting to insist that he was that you know that the rumors aren't true and that he's actually dead. Uh, um, so, uh, so in some sense, the, the, although the, the film really is kind of changing that and, and simplifying and glossing it over, um, do you think that the rumors that Frodo, that they're hearing in the Shire, do you think they're talking about the necromancer and, oh yeah, it turns out that was actually sour, you know, are they talking, sitting around at the Green Dragon, um, uh, with Ted Sandyman talking about how the necromancer was actually Sauron and yeah, now he's gone or is, or is Gandalf adding in details when he mentions Mirkwood here? Well, I mean, I do think that Gandalf is adding into, or at least what Gandalf is doing is confirming the truth yes. uh, behind the rumors. But it is interesting that like Gandalf does not throw that out as if it were a huge 
revelation. You know, I mean, he's not like, and guess what? The necromancer was actually Sauron all along. And he says he has left his fastness in Southern Mirkwood. Um, you know, like, like, yeah, you've probably heard that the necromancer was actually Sauron. And I mean, like there had been rumors and speculations. Basically, the big question was, who is this necromancer dude? And it turns out the answer was, uh, was Sauron. Um, and and Frodo's probably hearing these rumors from, um, you know, we we were told in the books that he actually, um, like Bilbo speaks extent. He wanders throughout the Shire, yep. wanders to the border, speaks extensively with travelers, trying to get any any and all news they can get. So this probably isn't. Um, the usual gossip at the Green Dragon with the other hobbits. This is – he's talking to dwarves and men yep. or other travelers. Yep, exactly. Well, and here, I'll, 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 I'll read sort of the fuller passage. This is, this is in the Shadow of the Past, Chapter 2 of The Fellowship of the Ring, and it's before he starts his conversation with Gandalf. So this is basically what Frodo has heard prior to his long conversation with Gandalf. Uh, but now Frodo often met strange dwarves of far countries seeking refuge in the West. They were troubled, and some spoke in whispers of the enemy and of the land of Mordor. That name the hobbits only knew in legends of the dark past, like a shadow in the background of their memories, but it was ominous and disquieting. It seemed, here we go, it seemed that the evil power in Mirkwood had been driven out by the White Council, only to reappear in greater strength in the old strongholds of Mordor. The Dark Tower had been rebuilt, it was said. From there, the power was spreading far and wide, and far away east and south, there were wars and growing fear. Um, oh, and this, this is what leads up to the sentence that I quoted uh, uh, a while back when we were talking about the trolls. Orcs were multiplying again in the mountains. Trolls were abroad, no longer dull-witted, but cunning and armed with dreadful weapons. So if you meet trolls, don't expect Burton, Tom, and Bill Huggins. Um <laughs> Uh, and there were murmured hints of creatures more terrible than all of these, but they had no name, uh, setting us up for the Black Riders, of course. So, um, so basically, so these are the, you know, the, 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 the fact that there is a connection between the Necromancer and Sauron is there. But you'll notice the way that it's phrased is good because even like who Sauron is exactly is something which is a matter of ancient legend. I mean, remember, gosh, the, the, the destruction of, the the destruction of of Baradur, the the taking of the ring by Isildur, bears the chronological relation to Frodo sitting in Bag End. That mm. what like ancient Egypt bears to us? Yes. So you know <clears throat> we're not talking about like you know have you been keeping up with the news lately? Uh, we're talking about ancient, ancient. So like who 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 is Sauron? Like that name? Like what that you know? There's this idea of a dark lord, and so I mean I think it's the way that Tolkien describes that. You can see that this is kind of as far as the hobbits themselves, or even the dwarves themselves, who are the ones who are traveling and tell him this, um, understand the evil power in Mirkwood had been driven out, only to reappear in greater strength in the old strongholds of Mordor. Um, so there is this evil power. Like we know there's this evil power. We don't really know much about him. We don't know who the guy is. We don't know his personal history. Um, saying Sauron doesn't even mean all that much. We just know there's this dark lord. There's this evil guy who's got orcs and, and, and everything. And he was in southern Mirkwood, and now that power has moved to Mordor, um, which is like we know from ancient, ancient stories, we know is is the... Um, you know, was the stronghold of the Dark Lord back in ancient times. 
is like, you know, is it the same dude risen again? Like they don't really, they're not, they're not even really thinking in those terms. Like, oh, so Sauron's still, still been around. I wonder what he's been doing kicking around for the last couple right. thousand years. They're not asking that question. They're just like, and now, oh, great. There's an evil power in Mordor again. Like that's just like old stories. That can't yeah. be good. They're basically um, just assigning names to things, but the significance that it holds for it is certainly not the same as the, the significance it holds for us. Yeah, they don't have they don't have the Silmarillion, you know, like they don't have they don't have like a one volume treatment of the history of the whole story so that you can follow this big picture version of, you know, of the the history and the mythology. All they have are these ancient stories, many of which are probably, you know, like garbled and inaccurate. Um, And they're hearing rumors that that like that are connected with some of those old stories, but still in ways that they don't fully understand. So when Gandalf comes in, he's confirming, he's confirming, yes, like the stories are true. Yes. It's, and uh, uh, you know, and he, and he gives name and he gives a little bit more background. And this is, of course, it's in this context that he then goes on to tell Frodo some of the, you know, that's what we get in the rest of chapter two in the conversation between Gandalf and Frodo is that bigger picture view. Let me tell you the story about the rings of power. He doesn't tell the whole story, right? He doesn't go back to the first age and Sauron's history back there. But what he does do is basically start from Eregion onwards, start with the rings of with the forging of the rings of power. He skips over Numenor, right? I mean, he doesn't do all of Sauron's story. This is not a complete biography. This is not Sauron. This is your life. But instead it's, it's, you know, here's all the, all the, all that you need to know about the ring uh, and how this is related and who this, you know, and the, the real significance. It's not just that another evil power is growing in Mordor. It's the same guy. Um, and this is really important because you're wearing his ring. You know, so like that's that's the story that Bilbo that Frodo, of course, is going to get. Um, but now back to the back to the Hobbit film. Then how is this going to how is this treated in the Hobbit film? And the, the more I think about it, I think that those two factors, if we have those two conflicting factors, on the one hand, um, the desire to maintain consistency with the frame narrative and with the ignorance that the, that Frodo is in at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring film, um, and on the other hand. The desire to create what people are inevitably thinking of as a prequel, you know, and it's being explicitly called that. Um, I mean, if you're going to have a prequel and and Sauron is in the prequel, as you say, people are going to want to know that people are going to want to see that. I mean, people are going to want to see a flaming eyeball sooner or later in in these films. You know, I think like if if uh, basically people my suspicion is that people will be just as insistent on seeing a flaming eyeball by the end of movie two, as they would have been, as they were to see, you know, the Darth Vader mask by the end of the third uh, Star Wars prequel. Yep. Right. I mean, like we've got to get Anakin inside that black helmet by the end of the last film. Like however, that must happen. However poorly it's executed or right. awkward it seems. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> yes. Yes. And however, never mind. I'm not even going to go there. But you see what I mean, right? Like, I mean, like the part of the story, part of the, I mean, of course, and with the Star Wars one, of course, like the central story of those first three movies is like how Darth Vader becomes Darth Vader. Um, the, obviously, the focus of the Hobbit films is not the same. It's not like how Sauron becomes Sauron. But still, if we're going to have – it gives them the opportunity, which I cannot imagine they're not going to take, of giving Sauron a character arc. You know, we're going to get 
we're going to get Sauron is not just a a flaming eyeball on a stick. Instead, <clears throat> you know, he he develops there. He gets there over time. Yes. And and I you know, again, I can't imagine them resisting that. Um and I mean not that we're going to get the full or even a superior, you know, Anakin Skywalker treatment. I mean, I don't. It's. It, I'm, I'm not suggesting they're going to show us like Sauron falling to the dark side or something. But, but to to show development from, you know, the comparatively small time, or at least in hiding necromancer and the the whole. I mean, it's one of the things which is also potentially implied by the whole like setting free of the Nazgul thing. Yep. Right. Um. So. You know, like the building of his empire and they're like, now all the pieces are in place. I shall go and become a flaming eyeball. Like that's – you can see that happening um, and uh, especially if they dis- – but anyway, so here we are like spontaneously doing a Sauron episode after all. So <laughs> I can't stay away from it. People are – people including us are obsessed. Yes. 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 All right. All right. Bilbo. Bilbo, yes. After like an hour of show, we're getting to our topic for crying out loud. And so, okay. yeah, and, and the topic of this week is Bilbo. <laughs> the topic of this week is Bilbo. Okay, so you'd be surprised to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, all right, so Bilbo. The main thing, of course, uh, you know, thinking from the book perspective, the primary focus, you know, the thing that I, that I am most interested in in Chapter One of The Hobbit. Is the way that Bilbo's initial character is sketched. You know, he starts as the Hobbit. I mean, you know, like that's, I mean, in in the book, that is literally how he functions. That's the title of the book. He is the Hobbit. He's the only Hobbit that we meet. We know that there are other (laughs) Hobbits, but we don't actually get to know them. We meet a couple more of them at the very end of the book. But at the beginning of the book, we only meet Bilbo. And we're told, what's more, that he is a Baggins and that the Baggins side of his character, which is dominant, completely dominant in him when we meet him, um that you know the 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 bag inside of him is like the prototypical hobbit culture and character that his 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 antipathy to adventures uh his love of comfort and ease um his predictability this is one of the things the narrator emphasizes about him one of the things that hobbits in general approve of in bagginses is that you can always tell what they're going to say on any subject without even the bother of asking them they are very predictable there's nothing surprising um hobbits apparently don't like to be disturbed um they like their quiet life and so that's Bilbo as we meet him at the beginning. That's that is that is the Baggins side. Now, of course, the sort of the the drama that we are that we are given, which is of course you know the 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 sort of preview of what's going to be happening through the rest of the story, is that Bilbo is of mixed Hobbit heritage. That there is this one deviant subculture among the Hobbits, namely the Took clan. Who do sometimes have adventure, ad- adventures, and they're weird. Now, of course, you know Tolkien doesn't. An interesting thing here: they're not just outcasts. Of course, the Tooks, in fact, are the most powerful family in the Shire. Um, they're undoubtedly richer than the Bagginses. 
um, and they and, and they are they are they are powerful and influential. So they're not they're not quite trusted. They're they are seen as different, but it's not like they're ostracized. It's not like they're they're outcasts from Hobbit society. They're just not, you know, the mainstream of Hobbit society, which is what you know. So in a sense, the Tooks are almost above the rest of Hobbit society, rather Nobody's than being them sort of considered parties. below it. Um, they're certainly considered outside it, and they're not particularly, you know, they're not trusty in the same way that Begginses are trusty. Nobody's Bilbo, inviting them to parties, or at least if they do, they don't expect them to come. Right, or at least they expect it to become a different kind of party. If they yeah, yeah, right, them. right. Uh, yeah, so no, it's, 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 yes, exactly. And But now Bilbo is um, the child of two people whose names by the way i just i've always thought their names are just brilliant um the names of bilbo's parents tell you all that you need to know about them without hearing anything else right his father's name was bungo and his mother's name is belladonna and we just have that you know you have you know bungo baggins as this like the the you know with the the sort of semi-accidental, you know, homophonic implications of bungling. And, you know, he's just, he's, he's, uh, this, he is, he is, you know, Bungo Baggins is the, uh, epitome of Bagginsishness. You know, he is the epitome of this kind of staid, predictable respectability, um, and is often referred to, um, over the course of the rest of the book, Belladonna gets referred to Never again after the first chapter, but Bungo does come back quite a bit, um, very significantly or very illustratively at the beginning of chapter two when uh, Bilbo is wearing the the dwarf hood because he you know he doesn't have his hat or anything, and um, so he borrows the ill-fitting dwarf hood from uh, from Dwalin and he's riding along feeling like he looks very ridiculous and uh and the narrator says what his father bungo would have thought if he looked at you know if he had seen him i don't like to think um you know that's the way that that's the way that bungo comes up over the course of the rest of the book though my favorite bungo reference is later on when bilbo is quoting um a proverb like a maxim about uh, about dragons every worm has its weak spot as my father used to say and then he, and then he says Though it wasn't from personal experience, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that by itself actually is that's, that's kind of a whole separate topic. But it's it's it, but because it, it's really interesting, the fact that Bungo Baggins actually does have, you know, like uh, you know, adages that he quotes about dragons. Like he 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 has you no know, obviously presumably Bungo Baggins you know does not have personal experience with dragons and has never applied these you know and has no intention of applying these uh, you know these proverbs to actual dragon slaying situations right uh, you know that clearly um, he uses uh, he uses that proverb in the same way that he uses one of the other proverbs that. Bilbo quotes of his, you know, third time pays for all. So, um, uh, so that's, that's, that's just like throwing them around. Exactly. These are, these are traditional, seem to be traditional Hobbit proverbs. So again, we have Bilbo's father, uh, connected with like traditional Hobbit wisdom and culture and thought, right? That he is, though again, what I find most fascinating about that is that it is a moment where we can see 
that there is in fact an infusion of these old adventurous stories in Hobbit culture. Like they still have that proverb about, about dragons and dragon scales, you know, every worm has his weak spot. Um, the fact that Hobbits say that is very interesting. So it just out of curiosity as an aside, what do you think that comes from? Well, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it would have to come, I mean, within the frame of the story, it would have to come from, you know, legends of dragon slayings. And we know that there are more than one. I mean, we're only prior to the Hobbit. We only see one. There's only one dragon slaying depicted, uh, in Tolkien's works, uh, Namely, the the killing of Glaurung by Turin Turinbar uh, in the Silmarillion. That story, of course, did exist before The Hobbit, so it is quite possible that uh, Tolkien is kind of thinking of that. In fact, I think, and when we eventually get to Smaug, which we'll probably get to in like, you know, 14 months or something, um, because we're saving Smaug for next year in anticipation of the second film, um, I, I do think that there is a, a that there is a, a, a direct though, cla- though, uh, you know, it's not, not by name, but I do think that there is a reference to Turin Turinbar, uh, mm-hmm. um, in Smaug's dream. That, that's how I take Smaug's dream, um, uh, that he, that he has later on. But anyway, it's, it's, we're, not, we're not, we're not talking about Smaug right now. Um, so, uh, Anyway, so that, that's the only story in Tolkien's world that we have about dragon slaying, but we know that there are others. There's a reference to another dragon slaying in the appendix of The Lord of the Rings, of course, with the, with the slaying of Skatha the Worm from whose horde Mary's horn was taken. Um, you know, uh, uh, so that was um, – uh, so and we know that these things have happened. Um, and from, from stories that we get about um, – uh, the fact that there are other dragons and that there have been in the you know lots of lots of stories of you know fights between dwarves and dragons over treasure in the past and we know that several of the dwarven rings of power were consumed by dragons so um so i mean we know that there's like this there, there does exist this 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 history which must there must be stories you know it must be part of the folklore that gets handed down uh to these later ages about these stories. And in fact, when the dwarves are in, you know, after Bilbo uh, goes down to Smaug the first time uh, and the dwarves are sitting around talking about Smaug, they are trotting out all of the stories that they can remember about dragon slayings. Um, though the narrator recognizes that some of the stories they're trotting out are dubious or mythical. Um <laughs> But uh, but anyway, they do have stories. So that seems to be what where that proverb comes from in Hobbit culture, that there is this traditional idea of dragons and killing dragons and that uh, – that, and, and even Bilbo's comment to Smaug, you know, I had always understood that, you know, dragons were softer underneath. Um, well – where did he get that idea? You know, he got that idea from, uh, from these, these old stories about dragons. And of course the one dragon slaying that we do get does bear that out, you know, that Glaurung is stabbed from underneath, uh, by Turin. So that does in fact seem to, 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 uh, to be true. Glaurung is stabbed twice underneath actually once non-fatally and once fatally. Um, so, so yeah, so, so I, that, so that's, that, it, 
that's kind of interesting. That that's this glimpse that we get. The dragon proverb from from Bungo mm-hmm. is an interesting glimpse of the fact that even um, Hobbit society, which is very you know very very respectable and very 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 upright and very non adventurous and very non imaginative, is actually built upon a foundation which is different. You know that they have long since even ceased to think like. It, 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 you know, Bungo probably doesn't even think that he's talking about dragons, you know, when he uses that proverb because he's he's applying that proverb in other ways. Um, so he doesn't even probably even think about it. Right. Yep. It's it's basically kind of a, a dead metaphor almost. Right. Exactly. I would imagine that it is. Um, and then but, – but see, so then you have the Tooks. So this again I think sort of further complicates the relationship between the Tooks and the rest of the Hobbit society. That is the, the Tooks are not like just the weird ones. They're not just the Hobbits who have gone in a different direction from the rest of the Hobbits or you, know, you start from the foundation of you know, boring, predictable Hobbit culture and the Tooks have branched out from that to the wild, wide world of adventure. Instead, it almost suggests the opposite, that it's the Took world, which is the foundation, and the rest of the Hobbits have forgotten it, and only the Tooks have remembered and stayed in this old tradition that perhaps, perhaps, if you go back a ways, the Hobbits were different or that hobbit culture was different that anyway i think is 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 the kind of question that we're invited to ask um and of course in talking about this stuff i'm kind of jumping ahead to those later references to bungo later on in the book um mm-hmm. but uh but anyway i think i but but i think it's important to sort of look at the uh the the relationship between kind of the took culture and the baggins culture um but of course the most fascinating thing about uh the Hobbit – in one sense, one of the most fascinating things is simply the marriage between Bungo and Belladonna. I mean how did that happen? Yeah, that one, seems, one. it seems complete. It's hard to imagine Bungo's family being real uh, uh, enthusiastic about that match. Yeah, I mean there's the one implication that he was a bit of a gold digger basically. Uh <laughs> I mean, like, not to put too fine a point on it. I mean, the narrator does say that, you know, he built for her, he built Bag End for his wife um, when they were married. He's with her money. (laughs) Yes, largely with her money. Exactly. So um, that reference to the fact that, that, that Belladonna's dowry essentially funded the luxurious uh, Bag End uh, does imply that Bungo was clearly much poorer. Uh, than Belladonna was. So this is not a question of like the high and mighty Took family, you know, falling into reduced circumstances and marrying up into the into, into a you know this is not like a, a Victorian novel where like uh, you know one of the like one of the 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 great duchies of England is fallen on hard times and has to you know like the daughter has to marry into the family right. of like a like an up and rising rich banker or something who's very gauche and middle class but incredibly wealthy on, um, on that note do you think uh, belladonna's uh, fortune was entailed <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, what, like away from Bilbo? No, clearly not. Um, yeah. No, no, I don't. I, I doubt. I, I don't think. Thank God they didn't have a, uh, a a daughter. Right. Exactly. 
Exactly. It could have been ugly. Um, no, no, I don't think that there was an entail involved. But anyway, there's that. There's you know. Anyway, but my point is that does not seem to be the story here. We do not have, you know, the boring Baggins, boring but rich Baggins is you know coming in to the rescue of the uh, storied, legendary, um, you know, traditionally powerful. Uh, no, it's the opposite. I mean, the Tooks are still undoubtedly richer than the Bagginses. Um, Bungo is marrying up, like all the way across, socially, uh, uh, you know, socially, kind of politically, financially. Bungo is marrying up. Um, and, and again, so really, the question is, why did Belladonna have him? And we don't know. I mean, we, we've, we're we're not, we're, not, we're not told that story. We don't know anything about Bilbo's parents, other than other than what we're told there, and the implications of the imbalance in their finances. It seems it seems as though the only thing we can really um, conclude, in my opinion, is is they must have had genuine affection for each other. Yes. No. I mean, it does. It does seem so. I mean, it it does seem like a, a sort of an, an an unlikely and slightly odd uh, love match. Or there's um, some kind of weird sort of uh, uh, intervention by higher power to produce the the Took Baggins line that would come <laughs> to save the world later. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, and it's it's uh, it's definitely. Um, you know, one thing that to kind of glance forward again, um, to kind of glance forward again through the rest of the book, one of the things that we, um, one of the things that we see happening is, you know, it, it's it's kind of one might expect from the opening that what's going to happen with Bilbo is that like he starts off as a really boring Baggins guy, but he's got this like awesome adventurous tookness uh, kind of you know implicit in him. And so as the story goes on, he gets like less boring and more awesome until like at the end he's uh you know, he's really totally come out of his shell and now he is like one hundred percent swashbuckling took and you know, has left like the boring baggins-ishness behind. Um and that's not at all what happens. Um he does sort of get more in touch with his took side, but he never loses his bag inside. And in some ways his bag inside becomes stronger as the story goes on. Um, so we have, <clears throat> it's important to remember that Tolkien is not setting up at the beginning, nor does he ever come around to suggesting that the bag inside is bad or in fact boring or, uh, or, or, or anything that basically that there's really a preference. Right. What the you know the the ultimate drama of Bilbo's character is going to be essentially a reconciliation between those two things. You yeah, know that he can he basically resolves them. Yeah, he he can he can really become the best of both worlds. He can really appreciate the best of both worlds, um, and that he can he can have the goods of both of both sides because they really are goods. Um, and so in this way, you can kind of see, you can kind of see. Bungo and Belladonna coming together, you know, that, that, you know, one could almost suggest that they, uh, that they might have kind of seen that in that each of them appreciated in the other, um, you know, what they, uh, what, what the other one was though. The, again, the implication, the, what there's, there is one other implication that we get of their relationship, uh, which is that Belladonna took certainly had no adventures after she became the wife of Bunko Baggins, um, which does suggest that he was not very approving of the whole adventurous thing uh, and perhaps um, was 
uh, I don't know if ashamed would be quite, quite the right word, but um, was not really accepting of this particular of the of the particular Turkish aspects of uh, of his wife and her family. Um, I, you know, it does potentially invite the uh, image of like awkward family gatherings um, with uh, uh, you know when Bungo was hanging out with Belladonna's family. But there are strange Turkish relatives who have just come back from some some trip. That they're eager right. to tell everybody around the dinner table, and and you've got uh, um, um, Bungo sitting there, sort of clicking his tongue, like. <sighs> right. Exactly. Now, I mean, I don't think you know. I I think that if we take it to the extreme and picture Bungo Baggins as a kind of hobbitish, you know, Vernon Dursley or something, <laughs> uh, that would like not be appropriate. <laughs> I don't. I think that that's going way too far. Um, but, uh, but yes, I mean, it does suggest that, uh, you know, basically once Belladonna married Bungo, she was in this strictly non-adventurous world, uh, and lived a non-adventurous life. Um, so I don't, so I think it would probably be going too far to say like, ah, the marriage of Bungo and Belladonna, the perfect meeting of equals, you know, or, you know, of like equals, but opposites. And, you know, they just appreciate about each other. Like what is different from themselves? And that seems probably a, a greatly over-romanticized version of it. Some people want to take that reference bet- between that one and the and the the reference to his building a bag end with her money, um, and want to build out of that a you know a, a, a really horrible picture of their marriage. Um, and and I, I'm not sure that that's really warranted either. That's you know it's uh, and I I don't think it's just that I don't want to think that that, that uh, Bilbo's parents were really miserable together, uh, but uh, but I just, that seems to me to be going a little bit far. Um, but yeah, it, anyway, it's prob- so it's probably something sort of in between. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so Bilbo. So how know, do you how do you envision this stuff playing into the film? Well, you know, it's an interesting question, though not at all one that I was planning to ask today but well i mean uh, i i mean about, less about, less i mean less bungo and belladonna and yeah. more though that though that is what to... i was just thinking of like will that will there be references to bungo and belladonna we get their portraits in bag end you'll remember yes. uh, in the film uh in the fellowship of the ring we we could see the portraits of bungo and belladonna on the wall um so uh it's yeah would they would he actually would there be any reference to them I kind of, uh, he has I, to make the dragon comment at least. Okay, you'd think, you'd think. Um, though I've been surprised before. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, so for as as for as for for Bilbo himself, then the key, the sort of the the centerpiece of Bilbo's depiction uh, in Chapter One of the Hobbit is that he is a second edition of his you know, of his, uh, of his Baggins father, you know, he's, he's like Bungo come again. He is entirely respectable, entirely predictable. And then he ends up getting dragged off on these adventures. Now there are a couple instances, you know, we have this internal conflict within Bilbo um, in a sense. That is, we know that he is, there's the famous passage where he responds to Gandalf when he hears Gandalf's name. And we learn that he actually takes delight in things which are adventurous and not very predictable or respectable, that he loves Gandalf's fireworks, 
and he loves the stories that Gandalf used to tell, these adventurous stories. Um, which is, of course, one place where hobbits could have learned about dragons. Um, so we know that that, and, it's a, and this is where the narrator says that you know you you can see from Bilbo's reaction, you can see that he was not quite so prosy as he liked to believe. Um, that there is something not just prosy but poetic, and that actually I think is is one of the metaphors that I think is is really illustrative that Tolkien uses um, about the Took and Baggins side. The Baggins side is like prose, and the Took side is like poetry. And um, so anyway, so he, he Bilbo is um, Bilbo is thinking about these old stories, and he he is excited about those things. He doesn't you know, lose himself completely. As soon as the conversation with Gandalf comes around to the possibility of his being invited to participate in an adventure or being sent on an adventure by Gandalf, he is completely flustered and runs away. Um, So there is no, we don't have a Bilbo who has any kind of conscious um, struggle, you know, at least not at the very beginning, who, you know, who's sitting around thinking like, gosh, I'm really kind of bored with this life, but no, no, I really shouldn't. Um, He's not like that at all. He is kind of drawn to these things, but he has no conscious struggle. He's not dissatisfied. He's not bored. Um, He's not secretly, like, in his heart of hearts, pining to go off on adventures. He finds some of these things appealing um, in ways that, but but notice that, that, you know, that sentence that I quoted, um, he was not so prosy as he liked to think. He likes to think of himself as prosy. but he's not so that is his entire his self image is not sort of conf- he doesn't think of himself as one way and is like no I shouldn't be that way he thinks of himself as like Bungo he thinks of himself as just Baggins that is his entire self image and that's the way that's the way that he is it's the way that he acts but he has these inclinations there's something he got he perhaps got something queer in his makeup uh, from the Took side. Um, as the narrator says, hmm. the other time, of course, when the Took side comes out, there are, there are there are th- two other, of course, crucial moments in the in the unexpected party scene where this comes out. The first is when the dwarves are singing their song, and Bilbo is swept away by the song. So he he is imaginatively carried into uh, the dwarf world when they're singing their "Far Over the Misty Mountains" cold song. Um, and he is, um, his, his, his mind is drawn into this, you know, the, the desire of the hearts of dwarves and he, he pictures this and then what snaps him out of this sort of tookish, this very tookish mood, um, of imagining carrying a war, a sword instead of a walking stick and, and, uh, and thinking about the dragon treasure and, uh, and everything is imagining any actual physical danger to himself. He sees somebody lighting a perfectly ordinary wood fire off in the distance out his window. And he imagines dragons coming to the hill and, uh, and destroying everything. And then immediately the, the fear that that inspires, makes him you know he is immediately mr baggins underhill again um uh and that is so that's you know that's basically his 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 reaction he becomes bagginsish again after that sort of semi-conscious tookish flirtation the second moment of course the the or i guess the third total that i'm talking about here is when he when the narrator says the took side had won this is when he overhears Glowen in the other room 
saying that he looked more like a grocer than a burglar and asking, will he do? Um, and Bilbo overhears this and gets really angry and goes back and, in his own words, puts his foot in it. Um, and he does that because he wants to be considered fierce. Like, he, you know, he's, he, 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 you know, Glowen says that he doesn't look very fierce. He looks more like a grocer than a burglar. And Bilbo is furious. And, um, and, 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 and his reaction is, and this is, I think, the most tookish thing about this is the nature of his reaction. Um, if he were 100% Baggins and he heard a dwarf in the other room say that he looks more like a grocer than a burglar, that like, you know, Will he do as a burglar? This guy looks like a crappy burglar, and I don't think he would be very fierce. You'd think a 100% Baggins would respond to that by saying, well, of course I'm not fierce. You know, of course, of course I'm not going to make a good burglar. Honestly, like, you know, that he would be insulted if somebody said he would make a good burglar. Instead, Bilbo wants to prove himself. His response is to be like, no, no, I want to be considered fierce. Um, I, I, I want to be considered like I am any good. As a burglar, I'm willing to volunteer to prove myself um, that he cares what the dwarves think of him, um, that he wants to sort of defend his non-existent reputation as an adventurer. And that's exactly the posture that he adopts when he goes back into them. And he says that he would go and fight the, you know, would uh, walk to the east of east and fight the wild wereworms in the last desert. Um, that's that's. Again, he's you know striking this posture of like, see, like what an awesome like would be adventurer I am. Like I'm totally competent and I'm completely fearless. And um, and and that posture is completely alien to the Baggins side. Again, it's just hard to imagine Bungo Baggins would have had that reaction if he had overheard Glow and said the saying the same thing about him. <laughs> you know, it just it really is. It's so, a weird moment. Yeah, and that's where I think that we can see – that's the way in which the Tookish, Tookish side comes out in Bilbo, um, that where – you know, it, it, it is sort of the premise upon which he operates there. Um, and so his his sort of the, the drama where he begins is in that kind of conflict between the things which he explicitly values um, and the way in which he pictures himself – but also these things that he is drawn to, these things that he finds in a sense desirable. He loved those old stories of Gandalf's. He was amazed by Gandalf's fireworks. Um, and he found Gandalf's magic and fireworks very, very, very compelling, very appealing. And he, uh, and he, clearly finds this, he finds the dwarves song and story very appealing. Like it, it awakens desires within him. And these are Tookish desires. These are not Baggins-ish desires. And so those are the, the the two things that are kind of coming together are these 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 Tookish ideas, these 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 poetic uh, Tookish desires, and his Baggins culture and values, right? And priorities on uh, on being, you know, on on being safe and comfortable primarily. Um, now. So in the films, exactly how are they going to treat 
Bilbo at the beginning. Um, that's that was sort of a long. Obviously, I really like talking about this. This is what uh, <laughs> I spent a lot of time in my book talking about the the token baggins thing. I think it's one of the one of the most central uh, and to me very interesting aspects of the the drama of the Hobbit and what's going on in the book. Right. And but the, so so there's hints of it um, already in the trailer. Yeah. You have um, Martin Freeman sitting there saying, "I'm a baggins a bag end." Presumably yep. in response to some proposal that he go on an adventure. Right, right, exactly. And so that – and I agree. That line I think is interesting. That is the his identification with with the place, with the location, and with, I suspect, therefore, implicitly, the society, right? Mm-hmm. That, um, that what he – the way that that line is phrased in the trailer does seem to imply not only his own personal identity but his standing in society. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, that it's not just that's who I think of myself, but this is how I'm perceived. Right, and right. I have this to meet the I have to meet the the expectations and and right. accept the norms of the society around me. Right, <clears throat> right, exactly. Um, so now, but but again, that that leads to I mean the question, which I then which I think is not certain to me, is are they going to how conflicted are they going to make Bilbo, um, Bilbo's character? Because I can see, I mean that that one line doesn't really reveal how they're going to be treating this all the way through. That is, are they going to show him as um, dissatisfied? You know, like like at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo is dissatisfied. Um, You know, he is not content in the Shire. He's and and this is because he's been you know quite thoroughly infected by Bilbo on this. He's in a totally different place than Bilbo was at the beginning of of uh, of the Hobbit. Um, But see, but that's exactly the element that was missing in Bilbo. He's not uh, as as we're told about Frodo in the Fellowship of the Ring. He's not looking at maps and wondering what lay beyond their edges. Mm -hmm. He's not. Um, he's not wandering around looking for wayfarers from outside the Shire to talk to to find out what's going on in the world at large. He is completely wrapped up in his life there in Bag End and going for walks just in the county round. Um, you know, he's got that map in the hall of his favorite walks. Um, but it's just the surrounding area. He's not interested in the world outside the Shire. Um and even the description at the beginning of chapter two in the book of his progress to that he has no sense of boundaries. He has no, he clearly has not looked at a map that contains more than his, his possibly even his little part of the Shire. Mm-hmm. Um, because he has no names for things, you know, no names are given in the book. You know, we, 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 we pass from, I I mean, the Lone Lands is kind of a name, but not exactly. Um, anyway, so, so, Bilbo does not have that curiosity. He doesn't have that drive. But I wonder, in the film, that would be one thing that they could do. Because, of course, one of the challenges with trying to translate this to a visual medium, and this is a kind of thing that we've talked about a lot because this is one of the major questions when you're thinking about an adaptation from a book to a film, adapting to a visual medium, you can't do the internal things the same way. You know, you can't just give uh, the a viewer this kind of window into what's going on in Bilbo's internal character. Um, you can't do that on screen the way that you can do that in a book, the way that through, you know, through a, through a narrator's descriptions you can. Right. Um, so I, you know, I wonder if they're going to make Bilbo be sort of explicitly much more resistant. 
Well, or, yeah, or not or, resistant, and, but um, I mean, maybe initially at the beginning when he's in the Shire, mm-hmm. he he's gonna be he's gonna put up more of a fight or or something. But but yeah, they're gonna have to find some way to portray the internal conflict externally. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, and and but yeah, is his resistance in the film going to be, uh, you know, kind of like a he doth protest too much kind of thing? Like he really wants to go, but he's just like, no, 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 I shouldn't. No, I shouldn't. Um, right. How how much are they going to make it appeal to him? Um, another way to ask this question, or rather, perhaps I should say, I guess a related question about the depiction of Bilbo is how much of a doofus is he going to be at the beginning of the film? Um, <laughs> because I think he might be a pretty big doofus at the beginning of the film. Yeah, um, I, I think so too. Which is which is interesting because, of course, in the book, he's not a doofus exactly i mean he's pompous um you know he's sort of pompous and self-satisfied and um he's well not exactly a prig but he's he's um very stuffy Mm -hmm. um and sort of fat and comfortable um but he and i mean that in more than just referring to his physical size um but uh but in the film they're clearly i'm i'm it's it's from the trailers it's not obvious that that's what they're going for that they're going to have him be sort of stuffy and uh and and stuck up right um but instead kind of bumbling and clueless um bilbo is clueless about adventures but he is not primarily a like tripping over things and uh you know dropping stuff and be like basically not he, the cluelessness of bilbo at the beginning is nothing like say the cluelessness that they depict in pippin in the films yes you know like tripping over things and knocking armor down wells and and you know you can do that kind of stuff endearingly but um but i it or you know to use the word that we were using before are they going to make bilbo a buffoon yes and i, it, I don't th- you know there doesn't seem to be i don't think there's any indication in the trailers at least so far in what we've seen i i don't know i don't think they're going they're going that direction yeah i don't know it's it would be interesting because of course see it it, it would be defensible I think in one way, because if one of the things that we're getting here is sort of the more objective version, um, Bilbo's the the story, the Hobbit story is told from Bilbo's perspective. The book that we have, of course, is not Bilbo's private diary, but uh, but you know a, a redaction based on Bilbo's private diary. Mm-hmm. But we still have things like you know it's but it's still fundamentally from Bilbo's point of view. This is what he called being on his dignity, right? Uh, you know about one of. But I'm sure it didn't look like that to the dwarves. Um, from a more objective standpoint, or even from the dwarves' standpoint, or from Gandalf's standpoint point he clearly looked different as gandalf makes clear in the quest for erebor when he describes um you know how that how how absurdly bilbo acted mm-hmm. uh during the unexpected party um so you could imagine he probably does look like a complete git to the dwarves um and to thorin and so it you know having actually depicting his character as being more of a git uh i think would be defensible in that way um 
And certainly they would find – if they're coming and expecting a professional burglar, you know, a professional treasure hunter, and they find Bilbo instead, he's certainly going to look like a buffoon to them. Yes. Um, so, you know, I mean, I could see it. I mean, I think it's defensible. Um, but it really involves how much do you want the audience to be laughing at Bilbo at the beginning? You can do that. I mean, you know, you don't necessarily lose that much because you can show the progress of his character. Um, but, but, you know, I don't know. It's, it's certainly not the way they handled the character arc of Frodo in the in the the Lord of the Rings, of course, he was never, you know, he was clueless, but he was not, um, he was never a buffoon, right? Um, hmm. Though, of course, there they had other hobbits to deflect that onto. Now here they have dwarves to deflect that onto, right? I mean, we have yes. Bomber to the rescue, so, uh, so like that's that's and and the other dwarves apparently too. I mean, there there's there's going to be a fair bit of buffoonery among them. Um, I, but, I I I gotta be honest with you. I I don't expect Bilbo to be that much of a buffoon. I think he's actually. I think they're going to be very measured with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it. I I can definitely see that. I mean, I think that that I mean that that would definitely that would definitely work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, how do they depict the conflict, and how do they depict this struggle? I mean, I you know say how do they depict the conflict implies that they're going to depict the same conflict or a similar conflict in Bilbo's character as was in the book. Um, but that's not really even clear to me. One of the things that I think is hard um, is the values that Tolkien associates with the Baggins side are some which I think are actually a little bit challenging. Uh, to depict sympathetically in a film, um, and they actually they they did a they did an okay job of this I thought in the Lord of the Rings films, um, the way that they treat the Shire and the sort of the you know the 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 fun and safety and comfort of the Shire in the interactions we see among the hobbits at the beginning, um, though even there like. You know, the hobbit picking his nose and, uh, you know, like we do get the hobbits themselves more broadly as buffoons um, in in the Fellowship of the Ring film. They're very bumpkinish. You know, they're very – they're very – you know, they're kind of charming and it looks like fun, but they're very unsophisticated um, in some negative ways as well as in – some kind of positive ways. And so I cause see this is what I this is like basically if if the stuff which in the book is associated with a Baggins life is simply associated in the minds of viewers with being provincial, with being closed minded even, with being um you know sort of lazy and oblivious, it's gonna be hard to depict that as a positive. Um how are they going to treat that aspect of Bilbo's character um, as not a negative? You know, how do you keep the Took versus Baggins side in Bilbo's character in the film from being simply a you know good versus bad impulse? Like, okay, maybe he still likes the Shire and is happy to be home, but um, but what is that other thing in his character which is not because the 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 heroism, the you know, the adventurous side, is the side which is 
obviously suitable to like, how do you make him continue to not fit in in a positive way? Because yeah. that's what happens in the book. He never fits in with the dwarves. He's never the same as them. Even as he gets acclimated and becomes their leader, he never fits in with them. And that's still clearly a good thing right. with him. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's – I think it's uh, – and especially there at the beginning, I think is going to be it, – it's going to be crucial how they depict Bilbo at the start for that reason. Um, the better they set that up at the beginning, the more they're going to be able to work with later on. But if it's just like, oh, I'm a stay-at-home hobbit and I don't want to leave and I don't like adventures and I don't want to know anything and I, I don't want to – um, be involved in anything besides, I just want to stay home and, and smoke my pipe. Um, well, I, I, think, I think we've gotten hints of this in the trailer and in some of the production videos that I think what they do is they, they invest five or 10 minutes in showing his idyllic, um, um, Shire life. They show mm-hmm. him sitting comfortably in the evening, smoking his pipe and eating delicious meals. They show him, uh, wandering around the market, um, uh, um, interacting with other hobbits that he socially fits in. They just basically show him having an idyllic life, and and then they show the dwarves showing up and Gandalf showing up as being kind of um, uh, you know sort of Im- Im- infringing on that or Im- impinging on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's it's. I'll be interested to see. What kind of values are attached to the Baggins? Again, if if they even maintain anything like this kind of split between the, his Took side and his Baggins side, mm-hmm. um, if they do that in the depiction of his character, what kinds of values they associate with the Baggins side? Yeah. Um, as opposed to the Took side, and basically in the same thing with how they treat the Took side. Um, because uh, you know, like the distinction between uh, poetic and prosy, you talk about hard things to depict on film. Like that's that's a pretty tricky distinction to get at. Um, so you know, but I think it's it's one of the most evocative. It's 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 in itself still a, a, a complicated metaphor in in many ways. I think to understand even in the book, um, yeah. but. But thinking about th- thinking about aspects like that, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine them really doing. So, what are they going to do exactly? Um, and I think it will be. I will be very interested to see. You know, here's my, I, I've, of course I have a very long list of things that I'm going to be looking for and paying particular attention to when I see the film. One of the things that I am very curious to see on this subject is how they handle Bilbo during the dwarf song. Mm-hmm. You know, we know thanks to the trailer uh, that the dwarf song is going to be sung, uh, and you know, I really like the song. I really like the melody. You know, like hats off to Howard Shore there. I think that's going to be awesome. Um, it is. I've heard several sung versions of that song, of course. Uh, you know, in various audiobook productions and 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 uh, of course the Rankin Bass film and all that stuff. Uh, but, but this version, uh, the, the, the song, you know, as, uh, sung by Richard Armitage is the best one that I've heard. I, I mean, I certainly like it best than the rest of them. Yeah. So they're doing the song. 
how are they going to do Bilbo during and after the song? Are they going to try to capture some aspect? Again, it would be so much harder to do on film. But are they going to try to capture some aspect of Bilbo being transported by this song? Um, of this song being one of the moments which is really influential in not only sort of bringing him to the place where he's going to agree to go along with them, but also just sort of revealing to us the – you know, the internal struggle within Bilbo's character. Um, I'll be very interested to see how they do that. Yep. Me too. Um, so perhaps we should get on to our, uh, our prediction of the, uh, of the week. Um, uh, and, and, uh, start talking a little bit about kind of how Bilbo's, how was, how they're going to delve into the Baggins versus Took dichotomy and imagery via Bilbo's interaction with um, with other Hobbit characters on screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. What? How are they going to be? And in a sense, I guess one way to think about this was like Bilbo's cultural position, mm-hmm. almost. Um, yeah. And our our four options are option A is the film is going to depict Bilbo as culturally mainstream. You know, yeah. he is going to be like thoroughly baggins. Yes. He is going to be like, you know, the Hobbit's Hobbit. Um, you know, the guy who who is clearly accepted by the whole society. Um you know, and this is basically what seems to what what seems to be implied in the book. Um that he is accepted by all of his neighbors, that he has good relationships with all of his neighbors, that he is like the heart of Hobbiton and everybody loves Bilbo and everybody has, you know, basically good relationships with Bilbo, right. that he is um, he is he is at the, you know, at, at the hub of Hobbit culture in the Shire. Yes. And if if people if there are any sort of sort of um um uh less than approving things that people say about him it's more just kind of maybe wondering at his normality given his his took parentage right right exactly or maybe you know and you know th- i can't th- believe he turned out so well somebody <laughs> right. like that right right and it doesn't have to be like everybody has to love him necessarily i mean like we could still get the sackville bagginses and and have them be envious of him right. because he's rich and because he has bag end and 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 all that stuff so i mean you know the, but that's all perfectly normal but that, um, that's like normal hobbit envy Right. The key is exactly the key that that's all within the Hobbit culture. The key is that for option A is that he is he is first of all fully acclimated within the culture, and second of all not viewed by that culture as as an outsider in any way. You know that there's nothing strange or or deviant about him culturally. Right. Option B is that basically he's going to be seen as more isolated. That is that he's not really connected with the Hobbit culture. And this is actually in some ways, um, and it's implied that he's connected to the culture. But again, in the book, we never actually see him interacting. He is Hobbit culture for us at the beginning. Um, And so basically option B is they're going to actually downplay. They're not going to show very, you know, they might show him like, you know, shaking hands with people in the marketplace or whatever, but he's not going to be like at the heart of Hobbit culture. He's yes. going to be, he's going to be isolated. He's going to yes. be on it. He's going to be primarily a loner. So, um, so, so the other Hobbits don't, don't view him with suspicion or disapproval. They just don't really think much about him. 
because uh, they don't know him because he he's sort of disconnected from from the rest of the right disconnected from society right not not seen as adventurous not seen as you know not 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 distrusted for Turkish reasons but just that he is he's not he's sort of disconnected from the society yeah. and that's a way that I could I could imagine the films doing this as a way to um, as a way to set up yeah, the. Yeah. This way, what they'd eventually be doing, or basically be doing, is trying to hint at some kind of proclivity for for something different. This this would be the the guy who's sort of, you know, like you know, living the normal life, doing all the right things, going through the motions, but but at, at core feels some sort of desire for something more. Right, though it's not clear what, and he doesn't have any kind of a reputation. Option C is that basically that they are going to play up his took side, that they're going to make him already, um, uh, already kind of deviant in yeah. Turkish ways. Well, that he's already on the path toward becoming who he, the way he ultimately is viewed. Right, right. That he's 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 got a reputation as something of an ad, not necessarily an adventurer, but um, and so therefore, basically, I could see this the the statement that Bilbo makes to Gandalf in the trailer. Mm-hmm. I could see that in this context is basically him trying to insist like, no, I can't, I can't do this. Like I, I have a reputation that I'm supposed to maintain, even though like he hasn't always maintained it. You know, you could see that as a kind of like a, like a guilt move almost like, you know, I'm supposed to be, um, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be this, even if I haven't been it perfectly yet, or, you know, to this point that like, I, I don't want to go any further in that direction. Um, so, because and basically this option C would I would think from the filmmaker's standpoint be the simplest. Yeah. That is, you could because again trying to set this up on film, you can only do so much internal, completely internal struggle on screen. Right. Um, so if you want to indicate that there is this conflict, you know, this 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 conflict within him that he has this. The film version of the narrator statement in the book that he must have gotten something queer in his makeup from the Took side um, would have to be shown by yeah. this. You know, that like there is some external reason to associate him with, you know, Tookishness and adventurousness. Right. So, yeah. And and I think that, that you know, and you're getting at a good point, which is try as they might to maybe portray a – because it's so difficult to do this on screen, yeah. there's nothing stopping the audience from bringing bringing their own expectations and preconceived notions about this character, especially if they aren't haven't read the book. Uh, there's nothing stopping for people from just assuming that he is he's the weirdo Bilbo Baggins adventurous guy. Right. Uh, so, right. Especially know, if it, they're coming from if they're coming from uh, the Lord of the Rings films only. Yes. Um, their 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 thought of Bilbo in Hobbit society is going to be like him telling the Hobbit children the story of the trolls at the party, right? Yep. Um, so, now, obviously, he's telling a story about something that happened to him in the Hobbit, so he's not going to be doing exactly that. Um, but uh, but this idea is, I mean, you know, so so yeah, so basically, basically they, showing him showing him wandering the market, interacting with people, being friendly, uh, all that kind of stuff. None of that is incompatible with the Bilbo portrayed in the films. No, I don't think so at all. Yeah. Um, because you could you could still get uh, 
you know, one way that this could be handled and could be done again fairly efficiently from a film standpoint could be, uh, you know, like a a conversation behind his back, even in the marketplace. You know, he walks by in the marketplace and somebody's like, there goes that Bilbo, you know, and uh, to give some indication that everybody sees him as like a little bit different. Right. You know, there's something strange about him so that the the viewer is then like, oh, there's something strange about Bilbo. I wonder what it is. And then we're going to see we're going to see him develop into an adventure. Yeah, it's much easier to do to do that than than to have him walk by and have people say that Bilbo guy is such an upstanding guy. Because, again, right. that's not incompatible with the Bilbo from the from the from the Fellowship of the Ring. Right. You know, like we don't actually get a real strong sort of sense of um, of, uh, of of of, of dis- widespread disapproval or 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 um, concern about Bilbo in the films. It doesn't come across well. You right. Know, we we get the one scene of the scowling guy, but yep. that's at Gandalf. Yep. Right. Exactly. Not a Bilbo. Exactly. Yep. But but see. We could get exactly the way – that's a perfect example of the way that this kind of thing could be efficiently right. depicted. Um, all but you that, would need is the, like a my, weird glance or two at his back as yeah. he goes by in the marketplace. That's, that's my point. Like as you said, C is much easier to do. A, a is much. kind of tr- try as they might to convince us that he's actually mainstream Baggins guy. If the audience just assumes that uh, that he's that he's a Tookish guy, that he's Bilbo from The Lord of the Rings – you know, no matter what they do, the, they may not get that message across. It's much harder to do. Right, right. But now, see, option B is basically kind of like the middle ground. Yes. Because, of course, the, the, the danger of doing C is that you actually greatly reduce, reduce the, the, the drama yep. yeah, of his character. Yep. And, of course, as we know, uh, the Lord of the Rings films were all about introducing character art, uh, arc and drama, That's internal right. drama. Like we've got to make Aragorn really conflicted um, or else it won't <laughs> be good. And we've and got Faramir. to make Faramir really <laughs> conflicted, right? I mean the way that they introduced internal character conflicts where there were none. It was to uh, externalize books, it as choices yeah. and actions. Exactly. And and so so you've got – I mean I've got to think they're not going to downplay this aspect of Bilbo's character because it's exactly the kind of thing they were they were hauling in and inventing for other characters um, in The Lord of the Rings. So so yeah. So I'm, I'm, I, I got to think they're going to do this. And if they do that, if they do – if they're too over the top with options – with an option C approach – then they really minimize the development. If he's just like an adventurer waiting to happen at any minute, then when the dwarves show up, then like, hey, all right, awesome. Like, Last, this I've been is waiting my destiny. For you. Yes, exactly. Then yep. basically you lose that drama. So I, I can't think they're going to do that. Again, I don't think that that is in, in the end an argument, like a, a total argument against C, but, it, but, it's, but they have to be careful in how they do that. And so B would basically be a way that you can create the fact that there's – create some separation between mm-hmm. him and Hobbit society. Like he's not just – he's not exactly mainstream. Um, but also he's not just an adventurer waiting to happen. He's not just like – basically the reaction when he goes away with dwarves – it's not that everybody's going to be like, oh, well, of course he did. Like it was only a matter of time before before that Bilbo did something like that. Um, whereas, you know, his going off on the adventure, if they go option C, would not be seen as totally – as inconsistent with his character. Surprising still maybe that he actually went up and did it. But 
but basically yeah, it really reduces the the you would have people you would have people saying or being able to say see like i always knew that one of these days bilbo was going to go off the you know do something weird yeah. um that would be like the, but but again the way it, they do it about frodo right exactly but in option b um yep. there would still be this now option d is essentially the they they're won't, just gonna, they won't afford the screen time to deal yeah, much with this. Exactly. They're just gonna they're just gonna strip it down. Um and even, we even if they have scenes them in the Shire, they just the, the those scenes will be um, right. like a fifteen second uh, pastiche yeah, we... kind of mood they'll they'll be there to, to, to show us um how beautiful New Zealand right. is. Um, <laughs> yes. Not, yes, exactly. Not not aim to really <laughs> delve into these issues. So so right. here's here's my question for you. Uh, which of these is the um, which of these would you consider to be the Mark Fisher true the to pure... the book answer? <laughs> we, we, we really should stop teasing Mark about this, but yes, I would say the purest answer would be A, mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, you could make an argument for B because again, it's like functionally in B, functionally the book depiction is B because we never see him interacting. We don't see other hobbits. But the general sense is that he is heartily approved. That um, basically, if in chapter one of the book, you were to turn to one of one of book Bilbo's neighbors in Hobbiton and and say, like, what do you think of that Bilbo Baggins? They would be like, oh, I think, you know, I think he's great. I think he is like, you know, what every hobbit hopes to be when he grows up. Um, and that's the uh, that's the option A answer. Yes. If the if the person in Hobbiton would say like, well, I don't know, he kind of keeps to himself, uh, but I have no objections. You know, that would be option B. If uh, you know, so basically, like he's a little different. He's perhaps a little bit different, but I don't have any active suspicions about him or associate anything in particular yeah, with him. That would be- he keeps to himself. We don't really talk to him much. Right. Exactly. Um, then option C would be like, yeah, oh, that Bilbo, like he's trouble, and one fine day he's gonna like go off on a mad adventure. Um, that would be obviously option C. So I think you know when you think about it from that way, like clearly Bilbo's neighbors in the book would say option A. You know yes. they would they would say like, oh yeah, like Bilbo Baggins, he's the Hobbit's Hobbit. Like he's uh, um, he's 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 totally mainstream That's right. um, because he is in the book. He is he is Hobbit culture. You know, I mean, he is showing us Hobbit culture, um, uh, really kind of both aspects of Hobbit culture, because the way in which the token Baggins is split within him at the beginning does also seem to be a reflection of how it's split in Hobbit culture, that the primary, just as Bilbo is always like 90 percent Baggins or 95 percent Baggins with these kind of, uh, you know, Tookish like – mostly submerged holdovers in his character, that seems to be what Hobbit society is like, with almost all of them being like Bilbo and being of the Baggins-ish variety. Um, but this one family, which is rich and prominent and important and powerful, but outnumbered vastly uh, by by the Bagginses. Um, so anyway... So yes, I think I, I think that A is clearly the you know to me A is definitely the the book answer here. A is the book answer. All right. Well, we know which one Mark will pick. <laughs> You're just relentless. Yep. <laughs> yep. Although I can't remember. So so for our previous question, which one was the which one was the the book answer? I don't even remember. 
But uh, just just for what it's worth, on our previous question, question number nine, which was uh, what was it again? <laughs> oh man, was that? No, that wasn't the that wasn't the Ringwraith one. Was no, it, it was. Um, um, oh, it was the frame. It was the yes, opening the frame narrative. Correct. Every single frame. person has picked the. <laughs> Every single person, which was the ominous ending, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we're missing, um, uh, or, or rather, how will think? How will, no? It was how will it begin? How will? Oh, oh, that was the beginning. That was the. Yeah. I'm thinking of the ending. And right, and right. the and what everyone has picked is frame story moment right. involving Bilbo and Frodo. Frame story moment, right? Yeah. Right. Nobody right. bought our other answers. There's still a few people who have yet to answer. Father Roderick, Hannah, uh, Lily, the Last Alliance people, but everyone who has answered so far has picked T. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, no, that's that's interesting. That, and, that, I mean, it certainly and and there wasn't a there wasn't a uh, a true the book answer for that one. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Actually, I mean, again, like the, the the totally true to the book answer would be, I guess, like Bilbo sitting and smoking on his front step and Gandalf approaching him. But right, yeah. um, uh, uh, no, it, and in fairness to Mark Fisher, he hasn't answered a completely true to the book. Um, um, yeah. No, you've uh, totally, you've totally, you you've totally stereotyped him. You've totally yeah, pigeonholed him. He hasn't done him. that in over a month. Although, actually, I don't think the last four questions have had true to the book answers because there've been things yeah. like, "What will the main role of the Nazgul be in the Hobbit?" Film? <laughs> true, it's kind of hard. Well, no, the true to the book answer is like they're Nothing. nowhere, man. They're off in Mordor. Yeah, like, that's right. yeah, that's a good point. Finding their own business. He didn't pick that. Although he did say he was very tempted by it. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Well, God, I'm always tempted by the by the straight up book answer. Yes. So, which leads me to get to my actual prediction here. I am not going to go with the book answer. I don't think they're going to do it because I think it's going to lead to complications. I expect some version of C. You think you think they're going to make him Turkish? I do. I think you they're going to make gonna him. To- sacrifice the character development? No, I think they're going to still try to do the character development. I think and they're going to make him a conflicted C. And after your very, after your very fascinating discussion about how B is like the per, I would just, I just assumed you would pick B because you spent like eight <laughs> minutes talking about how B's the perfect compromise between A and C. I think it is. I think it is, but I don't think they're going to. You do don't it. think they'll do that. I don't. I don't. Uh, when it comes to when it comes to to actual prediction of what I think will really occur, I think it's going to be C. Um, huh. And and I because I, I mean I don't and I, I certainly I certainly do not think that they're going to like willfully sacrifice character arc and development. Uh, but I think that what they're going to do is make him explicitly conflicted. Like I think they're going to depict him as a hobbit with clear Turkish tendencies, which everybody else can see, but with him like consciously fighting against it. Um, okay. Okay. We, we need a, actually I, I, I realize we, we need to establish some kind of clear metric for measuring Turkishness. <laughs> How are we going to decide well, How are we going to decide the, the, which of these the is, is right? The, 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 how we're going to it's, it's all about what the what his neighbors in Hobbiton would say. This is okay. about his perception by this his relationship to the society, not just a question of his internal Turkishness. Right. So, um, so I think he's going to be conflicted about it, but I think that if you. I think that at the end of the day, if you interview one of his Hobbiton film neighbors, they would say, oh, yeah, like that Bilbo, he's weird. And and suppose 
Suppose what we get on screen in the theaters in, in December, December 14th, when this comes out in the U.S., two That's days right. after it premieres in uh, Northern and Eastern Europe. Um, uh, really? they're, they're doing it in Europe first? Yeah. Uh, let me pull up the IMDb thing. Let's see if I got it. I that. Dang it. It didn't remember I'm, it. I'm paying attention. Oh, man. you Yeah, you got to get with it, dude. Ah, absolutely. Um, they're they're rolling it over. It's going to take them twenty days to do the worldwide release. Wow. Oh. Uh, it's starting in. Um, it's starting in. Dang it! Open link. Open. It's starting in Belgium, Denmark, France, Norway, Sweden on the twelfth. Germany, Greece, Hong Kong, Hungary, Israel, Netherlands, Russia, Singapore, Canada. No, Singapore thirteenth. Canada, Italy, Japan, New Zealand, Paraguay, Romania, South Africa, Spain, UK, and US, the 14th. Wait, wait, wait. New Zealand? New Zealand is the 14th. What? (laughs) I know. It's not going to world premiere in Wellington? Seriously? I I guess – no. Well, I imagine they'll do the like a some kind of screening or something. Like a a separate screening. Yeah. Isn't that weird though? I mean I guess – is it possible maybe that with the time zone stuff that it'll actually be premiering at exactly the same time <laughs> in New Zealand? But but yeah, um, isn't that weird? No, because cause the fourteenth in New Zealand. I mean, they're a day ahead of us in New yes. Zealand. I mean, it's it's June first already in New Zealand right now. Yes. Um. So. So, uh, so yeah, so the, but there's no way they can catch up to Belgium and France. Uh, no, yeah, it's so weird. Good golly! Well, see, I mean, this is like the kind of thing where, like, you know, it's easy to sit around and be like, "What are they thinking?" And then, of course, there are like the the rules and stri- like the with the studios and the like. There's so much behind this that we have no idea yeah. of. Sure like, some, who knows the politics of? I'm sure of this. some part of it is related to minimizing piracy and all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah. yeah no but it is idea. it is weird. The poor poor people in Argentina have to wait until the first of January. What? Oh man. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's really odd. <laughs> yeah. It's it's okay. odd. So anyway, on the fourteenth, when this thing on the fourteenth in, the in theater, America and Canada. So, so here's my thinking uh, or my question for you. Suppose all we get is is images is is even even extensive scenes, but all we get is Bilbo wandering around, interacting with people at the market, saying hello, being friendly, all that kind of stuff. We don't get any um, um, uh, office style side interviews with his um, with his uh, with his neighbors. <laughs> we don't get any strange stares or sidelong <laughs> glances or muttered comments or anything like that. All we get are just scenes of him going about his daily life in in the Shire. Is that are we to interpret that as um, and and furthermore we don't get him making comments about his role or his place in society we don't have him saying you know hey these people already think I'm a weirdo I'm not going on a trip right. or or him saying hey I've got to think about my position you know I'm going to run for mayor someday and I can't be you know they, they'll use these in the campaign ads <laughs> against me. Um, suppose all we get is just him going about his daily life, and then we get some internal conflict stuff that hints at his internal conflict, but not how he's interacting with society. Is that D? Well, it's D. Okay. Yeah, it's D. I mean, I, in order for A, B, or C to be demonstrably true, we need, we need to get data about how other hobbits view it. Actual data, data beyond just Bilbo buying a, a loaf of bread. 
Right. Exactly. Um, yep. Yeah. All right. Because that doesn't prove what people actually think of him. Yes. Um, it, so it, in that case, though, though you know, I though though I would say if we get pictures, not like if 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 the montage goes on long enough, that is, if we get like. Bilbo in the marketplace, Bilbo in the pub, you know, Bilbo playing quoits in the yard uh, with his with his buddies, then it's clearly not B, right? I mean, he's clearly not a loner. If we see him in if we see him in diverse social settings, mm-hmm. then I think that we can clearly say that B is not the answer. Right. Um, but uh, and it would that would that would definitely even if we see nothing else that would that would certainly lean towards a i mean I, I would think if we if we get like a long montage of like him like in happy hobbit society i would i would conclude that that was a yep basically we would need some kind of definite thing we would need some you know scowl behind his back some whisper of one person to another some kind of dark look or overheard conversation in order to prove c yes all right well I'm going with D then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's also that's like the tr- you know if uh, if if mine is based on uh, film efficiency, yours is based on even more film efficiency. Yeah, my, yeah, my, mine's going with mine's going with. I, I just don't think I don't think we'll get. Or, or so when I say D, I don't mean they'll just cut all those scenes. Um, right. I, I mean we'll get scenes, but not sufficient data. I, I think it's just going to be images of him wandering around the markets, but I don't think we're going to actually have. Um, I don't think the filmmakers are going to go out of their way to say, "Look, we've got to make sure that the audience understands that he's a Baggins, and he that's and that everyone sees him as a Baggins." So we need to have characters explicitly saying, "Boy, that Bilbo sure is a very normal Hobbit who wouldn't go on any adventures." Right. I don't see them doing that. Well, I, think I that's, see that's too on the nose. I do because they did that. In the Lord of the Rings films. <laughs> well, okay. I could see them doing uh, – if they're going to do it, it – so here's my, my take. If okay. Peter Jackson feels – if his intention is to communicate that he's a weirdo, I think he would do that. Uh-huh. If, if, if his intention is to tell a story where he's a Baggins and he's normal, I think he'll just – um, find other ways to communicate it beyond uh, other characters' reactions to Bilbo. I think yeah. they'll just they'll just have Bilbo um, uh, um, insisting to Gandalf that he's a Baggins and he doesn't go on any of them far-flung adventures. Right. So, right, so. right. Yeah, I mean it's true. I I, I I I I can certainly imagine scenarios in which A might be accurate but hard to prove. Yeah. That, that basically, that's what I'm what I'm coming down on is I I really I actually have faith that that's that's the story they want to tell. I just think uh-huh. that it won't be – I think they'll decide that the screen time is not worth dedicating toward trying to prove it. Right. So I'm going well, with okay. D, man. Going with D? All right. Yes. Well, I think uh, I think we're going to get scowls and whispers and odd looks. Uh, uh, I definitely – They'll I, even bring back that same guy. Yeah, he was a great scowler. He was I mean, an that was, scowler. That was, that was a fantastic scowl that that guy has. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and good. We'll, All right, we'll find out the we'll find out the answer on December fourteenth. That's when it's coming out in America. So so now we have a yeah. date. Those of our listeners who live in Europe will be able to tell us in advance. Yeah, now we'll have a date to fixate on. By the yep. way, uh, I don't know if you you know, but uh, uh, and or if your listeners know, but uh, there you have, there's an opportunity to win a Hobbit production shirt from the One Ring. Oh yes, 
Yes, doing, I had heard about that. Yeah, they're doing it through uh, – it. basically the guy playing Bolg, who also happens to be Gregor Clegane in, uh, in uh, <laughs> Game of Thrones. He's giving away his shirt. So so it won't fit anyone. But... <laughs> That's what I was just going to say. What on earth uses that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you need a tent, uh, you can enter to win. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's very good. And also, I don't know if you saw the press release about the impending horror being released this fall, the uh, the Guardians of Middle-Earth video game. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. We're going to see one-on-one grudge matches between Gollum and Sauron duking it out. <laughs> Won't that be fun? Yeah. Won't that be fun? Yeah. They're really yeah. staying true to the spirit of the books. No, there's nothing truer to the spirit of the books than that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I actually think it would be uh, – it would be really funny to make a parody of this game that was true to the books. Um, that would, that really is sort of inviting. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, that's, uh, Sauron versus Gollum. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that, that fight would Bilbo versus Gandalf. Yeah. Right. Very true to the spirit of the book. (laughs) Um, the the people in the chat room are are hoping uh, that we'll get uh, office style um, interviews on the extras. <laughs> yes, of, yes. Uh, Bilbo's yeah. Bilbo's neighbors telling, him, boy, you know, I, I I always knew there was something strange about that guy. Yeah, though you know, this is your your ace in the hole here might be the whole c- cinematic release versus extended I, yep. edition in thing. the theaters on screen. Right, exactly. Because, uh, cause yeah, I could totally see this one being D, but then uh, shifting around and getting some more footage yep. to prove one of the others in the extended edition. Cut it. Cut, Peter Jackson. Cut. <laughs> no way, man. Five, A five, scowl does not take very much screen time, I'm five, telling you. Five minutes of Bilbo wandering around get, getting sidelong glances or five extra minutes of Avengers-style combat <laughs> in the forest of Mirkwood out on the, at the gates of Dol Goldor. Well, scowl only takes five seconds, so I'm still going with seeing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Believe well, it or not, we've gone on for listeners. over two hours. Yes, we have. Uh, since, of course, my semester is over and I'm no longer dashing across campus to class at 1130. Uh, There's now well, no we... incentive to ever stop. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So yes, we may get some slightly protracted riddles in the dark episodes here over the next few months. Well, thanks everybody for joining us. So uh, this has been a lot of fun. We will look forward to remember next week we're going to be moving on to Gollum. Uh, not necessarily talking in full about the riddle contest yet, but looking in particular about the 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 way that they're going to handle Gollum, his characterization, his background story. Um, of course, there's a great deal to be thinking about. Um, thinking about what they've already done with Gollum in the Lord of the Rings films, which they have to work with, as well as the stuff uh, from Tolkien's own writings, because of course we have also the additional complexity of the alterations in Tolkien's treatment of Gollum uh, from the first to the second edition of The Hobbit. So we've got all that stuff to kind of review and think about and go over in order to inform our thoughts about this for next week. So... 
Gollum all the time. So get ready with your Gollum questions and comments, and uh, we will uh, and we will get at that in two weeks. Yep. All right. Um, and I'd like to thank everybody who joined us in the chat room. Yes. Everyone uh, who commented extensively on episode uh, nine on the Mythgard page, just to remind people that is the the preferred place for you to go and share us share with us your feedback. It's of course accepted on the Tolkien Professor and Mythgard um, uh, uh, Facebook pages, but. We really want to direct uh, as much conversation as possible to the actual Riddles in the Dark posts um, and on the Mythgard page. Uh, and also, Twitter is also acceptable for some kind of pithy comments or questions or, or complaining that my audio is too quiet or things like that. <laughs> so um, so the Twitter accounts, of course, are Tolkien Prof and Dave Kale. There's uh, the Tolkien Professor and Mythgard Institute uh, Facebook pages. And then there's the Riddles in the Dark as part of the exclusive section on Mythgard.org. So right. uh, keep the conversation going there. Excellent. Very good. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and Godspeed.